Father, we thank you that we're here, and we thank you for the opportunity to once again be in your word. And Lord, as we look at these things taking place during the week and as we fellowship, uh, Lord, there's a purpose, and there's a purpose for us being here tonight, and that is not only as we worship you because you are worthy of our worship, but Lord, we desire to have our hearts stirred, and, and we wanted to hear from you now. And Lord, these prophecies, even though they uh, were given uh, 2,700 years ago, they're for us today, and they're very relevant. And they may be ignored in a lot of the church, but all scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for correction, for, uh, for reproof, for instruction in righteousness. And so, Lord, that's what we desire. We desire right now to just hear from you. I pray we're free from distractions. We would be settled into our seats. And so, Lord, just continue to minister to us at this time your word, and it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Well, as many of you know, on, on Saturday was kind of an interesting day, especially for some that uh, are here in the church. Uh, most of you, if not all of you know, what took place on Saturday is those who were in Hawaii got a text that a missile was coming in and that this is not a drill. And um, I was sitting at my desk actually working on Saturday when I got a text from somebody who doesn't uh, come here. They're, they're an old friend that I've known for years. And they were in Hawaii at that time. And they sent me that text that went out that, that we saw, incoming missile, take cover. This is not a drill. And he said, Pastor Jeff, what is this all about? And I text back, I don't know. I'm kind of a couple thousand miles away here in Greeley. I'm not the person to ask. But then I begin to, th you know, to think about, um, you know, as uh, we had uh, some from the fellowship, my own son and, and daughter-in-law that was there uh, with Ashley and her family, Virtus and, and JD and Lois and, um, and um, their family and uh, Amy. And I was thinking, what is going on? But we found out that somebody pushed the wrong button, right? But the aftermath was kind of interesting because uh, they were on a boat and, you know, they didn't have a whole lot of time to, to think about it because we know that if a missile did come from North Korea, that if you're in Guam, you got six minutes till it hits. In Hawaii, you got 12 minutes. And here in the mainland, um, you got anywhere from 20 to 25 minutes. And we know, as we've heard about the tensions, you know, in this last particular six months with North Korea and, and how they've been developing ICBMs and their t missile technology, and now they're claiming they can put a nuclear warhead or a, a hydrogen bomb, actually, on those missiles. And our intelligence is saying that even a year ago, they doubted that they could reach maybe Hawaii at the furthest, but now they're saying that they have the capability because of their testing to be able to really reach anywhere in the mainland United States. So it's a real threat that, that we think about and we wonder about and how far are they getting with that technology to put a warhead, a nuclear warhead on the missile. Some of our intelligence uh, is saying that they have that capability. And, and so we, we, we wonder about it and we realize that we are really in dangerous days, that we're in a different day because of the rhetoric and, and because of the tensions that have been going on. So when that came out, of course, Hawaii, uh, for the very first time that we've seen since the Cold War, remember, uh, maybe there are some of us that are a little bit older that can remember that in the 50s, that in the Cold War, that they used to have, you know, drills with, with students and, you know, because of Russia and the Cold War and all of this. But we haven't really worried about those things for decades since that time. And, and now all of a sudden, uh, Hawaii is having these civil drills and, and information given to the people what to do in case there is, you know, a missile attack. And same with Guam. And, and what I understand that that is going to now uh, expand throughout all the United States because they claim they can hit even the East Coast, Washington and New York. 
And so as we look at those things, but um, it, it, it concerns us and it really makes us realize that we live in a different world and we live in a very dangerous world. But as I was talking to, you know, JD and them and, and talking with Luke, what it was that they were thinking as that happened and, and they were on a boat and, and uh, it happened so quickly. But uh, we do know that the aftermath, because of that, there was people, particularly in the mainland, uh, that uh, are on the island, the big island, that as the sirens are going off, they, they, they were running. They were gathering their families and hiding in closets. Even some were putting their kids down in manholes. They were calling their loved ones and crying and saying that, you know, this is it. A missile is coming in and saying they, they loved them. There was all kinds of reactions that was going on. But my point here tonight is, what would have been our reaction? I think about what it would have been my reaction if I was there, or if it does happen here, and I pray that it never does. But here's the thing that we need to keep in mind, that there were those who realized that they thought that this missile was going to come in, that their lives were going to end in just a few minutes. And that, of course, is something that I've never experienced. But, you know, what would we do? What would be our response? And I don't think we can fully understand that or answer that unless we are in that kind of situation. But my point is this. As we go over our text here tonight, we're going to see that this prophecy concerning Damascus is going to be tied into what we talked about on New Year's Eve and in the first Sunday in our prophecy update. And, and we did talk about how that these things, remember that Isaiah, as he is writing, is telling us that these things will come to pass. And as we go through these chapters of Isaiah, and as we're going through this section of chapters 13, through 23 that speak of these burdens against these nations that surround Israel that we do have to, to think a little bit because Isaiah, he's given prophecy. There was near fulfillment as some of these prophecies, many of them were fulfilled. But all of a sudden in the middle of these prophecies, even as we're going to see the case for chapter 17, that there's a future fulfillment as well. So as we go through this and kind of sort it out, it really is quite incredible. And remember, Remember that when Isaiah began to give these prophecies clear back in chapter 3, these visions here for this book, that right off the bat, Isaiah is told by the Lord that these things will come to pass. Not that they might come to pass or it's a possibility, but they will come to pass. And there are things that we do know that as we are in these last days, we are in perilous times. As we see the storm clouds gathering, that the events taking place that point to the soon return of Jesus Christ, uh, I, I think that we need to always be considering what the scripture tells you and me. Because as those people in Hawaii, some of them really thought that this was the end, we need to remember, even as Paul wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, that today is the day of salvation. He's writing to that church, and he says that uh, in the acceptable time, says the Lord, I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. So I was, as I was thinking about what took place, and I don't know if some of you realize but the same thing happened in Japan just a couple days ago. That those who had this, this warning um, app on their phones, uh, there, there's a warning that came out that a missile is about ready to hit Japan. This is not a drill, but they were able to erase it after five minutes. So I'm thinking, this is crazy, you know, all this stuff that's going on. Of course, in Hawaii, it took them 38 minutes to, to uh, respond with the correction. But we do know that the Bible says for you and for me that today is the day of salvation. And, and I thought it'd be a good time as we think about these things and what happened and see the response of the people that we need to remember that we have today. Tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. And, and I hope, I would have loved to have been in Hawaii right after that in the streets or talking with people to be able to minister to them and, and to give them that message of hope. And you see, today is the day of salvation because for us, even as Christians, uh, I'm planning for tomorrow. 
Um, and I also know that I don't know if tomorrow's going to come. There's no guarantee for it. And to live every single day for the Lord. And I just want to say, because there's a lot of people here tonight, and there's a lot that are listening, and there have been uh, a lot that have been listening to those prophecy updates, a huge response that we've gotten from those two teachings that I did out of Ezekiel 38 and 39, that keep in mind that if, if you're not right with the Lord, that today is the day of salvation. And I just wonder how many people are thinking about those kinds of things as they were worried about that maybe their lives are going to come to an end. And if you're not right with God, that we're going to give you an invitation to accept the Lord Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior because he is your salvation. And that's what we are learning in Hebrews. That's what we learn in the scriptures. And not to play around with, with you know, our salvation, but to come to him. Because I think one of the subtle tricks of the enemy is you don't have to make a decision today to wait. And you see, we need to make sure that we are giving that message to others that today is the day of salvation, to continue to pray and to continue to give that message of hope. And I hope and pray for you guys here at Calvary Chapels, we give those invitations at the end of the teachings at our services that you would allow me to do that because there are people making decisions for the Lord every single week and coming to the Lord. And, and maybe they may not raise their hand, but they'll write me a note. They'll put the communication card that I gave my life to Jesus Christ. I got saved. And that just thrills me. So we want to give people the opportunity to do that. I don't want to ever come in here and think, oh, you know what, I'll give the gospel next week or the week after that. Because that's a, a lesson that D.L. Moody learned. And he would teach, and then all of a sudden the Chicago fires came, and he realized that the people who died in the Chicago fire were ones that came to his church. And he can't just assume that everybody that was there was saved. So he was determined to evangelize after each service to take a few minutes and give the gospel message. Of course, D.L. Moody also being a great teacher. So it reminds, as we think about these things, that today is the day of salvation. But also for us Christians, that as Peter is writing about the, the day of the Lord and, and the end time events, that he says that these things shall come to pass. And what manner of persons ought we to be in holy conduct and godliness? And what I hope that it makes us realize and reiterates to us once again that we are to prioritize the things of the Lord that we have today and to, you know, prioritize him and all of us that we got jobs or we may have businesses. We got families to take care of and kids to raise. We get, you know, busy with the cares of this world. But what I pray is that that those things don't cause us to drift away from making the Lord a priority in our lives. Realize this, Christian, that we were created for such a time as this, to be in the days in which we are living in. And I feel a real urgency to be more committed to teach the Word of God in this day and age where the Word of God is being dismissed more and more in churches. And to give the gospel message where the gospel is not being given perhaps maybe in many churches. But to be able to do that work of the Lord. It is Daniel in chapter 10. When he saw the visions of the last days, he was overwhelmed. He said, I fainted and I was sick for days. But then I got up and I was about the king's business. And I know that I've made that reference to you as we ended our prophecy update. But what I pray is that we would be about the king's business. And you might remember that it was Jesus, as he was making his way from Jericho up to Jerusalem there in Luke chapter 19, that the people expected the kingdom of God to be ushered in right away. And didn't he tell that parable at that time? He said, I'm going to tell you a parable. And that is that there was a, a nobleman who gave his servants each a mina. And then the nobleman went away to, to receive a kingdom to himself. But occupy till I come was the instruction. And they were to invest that which was given to them as good stewards of what the nobleman had given to them. And when he came back, they were to give an account of what they did with that mina that they had received. And you see, you and I, that we are to occupy 
until he comes back. And I believe that the Lord can come back for the church at any time. He can come back for any of us at any time. Uh, Again, but to live each and every day in the priority of the Lord. Listen, if a text was to come to us here tonight and it was real, I hope and pray that none of us would think, you know what, I wasted a lot of time. Or I've been so caught up in, in the world or I've wasted a lot of time. And it is Paul that would say, redeem the time for the days are evil. That we would say, Lord, each and every day, I want to be used of you. I want to know you. I want to walk with you. And I want to be used of you to make sure that he's the priority in our lives. Because I believe that as we do, that God's going to use us to be able to minister to others who are looking at this crazy world and how it's unraveling before us to be able to give them a message of truth and a message of hope, and that is the truth of the gospel, and to give them the truth of what God's word declares. So that's what I wanted to pass along, because here in this uh, prophecy of Isaiah chapter 17, there's some more heavy things that are going to be mentioned here. Let's begin to look at it. It In chapter 17, the burden against Damascus. Behold, Damascus will cease from being a city. So Damascus is mentioned 56 times in the Bible quite a bit. And Damascus today, as you know, because Damascus in Syria has been in the news over the last several years with the civil war that took place and, and uh, just uh, the, the um, over 500,000 uh, Syrians and, and people have been killed in the civil war uh, that has lasted for the last five years, uh, six years. And, and they say that the civil war is mostly over. There's still some fighting that is going on. It's still very troubled. But three million people have left Syria, uh, refugees, and tried to make their way to Europe and into Jordan and other places. So they've gone through a very difficult time. And here in this prophecy that we see that Damascus will cease from being a city, will be a ruinous heap. As we look at this, it's interesting because there are those Bible scholars that will come along and say, well, this was fulfilled in 732 B.C. You might remember that in Isaiah chapter 7, remember Ahaz the king, that he got word that Reason and Pekah, Reason the king of Syria, and Pekah the, the king of uh, the house of Israel, they had made this alliance. They were going to come against Ahaz. They were going to kill Ahaz and put their own king on the throne so they can have this three-nation alliance to come against the mighty Assyrians. And it was Ahaz who was told by Isaiah in chapter 7, don't worry about this alliance, don't worry about this attack from Reason and Pekah, because it's not going to happen. And what's going to happen is within two years that, that the king of Syria is going to be overtaken, and that's exactly what happened. When you go to 2 Kings chapter 16, you read how Tiglath-Pileser, who was the king of Assyria, came into Damascus, and he, he did a lot of damage, uh, and he... Um, took over Damascus. Matter of fact, we see that he's sitting on uh, the throne there in Damascus uh, after he had killed Peak, uh, or Reason. And we know that it was Ahaz that went up to see him, which was very unusual. Ahaz, instead of trusting the Lord, had taken some of the gold and silver out of the temple to pay off Tiglath-Pileser uh, to help him. And so here is the Assyrians that took over Syria in about seven. 32 BC. So there are some scholars that say this was fulfilled. I think that that a lot of chapter 17 was fulfilled at this time, but there are others such as Dr. Dwight Pentecost and Dr. Thomas Ice and others who are great scholars of the Bible who believe that this is yet a future fulfillment because that as you look at Damascus, Damascus has never been utterly destroyed and uninhabitable. Matter of fact, um, Damascus is known as the oldest, you know, continuous city in the world, almost 4,000 years old. Now, Jerusalem 
is 3,000 years old, but Jerusalem has been destroyed, right? Destroyed in 586 B.C. by the Babylonians and then rebuilt and then destroyed again in 70 A.D. by the Romans and has been rebuilt, but that has never happened to Damascus. So as far as we know, Isaiah here, given this prophecy that Damascus will be a ruinous heap, this is yet future. And as we go through this, we're going to kind of wrap it up to see how it's tied into perhaps some other end-time prophecy. But as far as we know, that, that this is yet future, that Damascus is going to be a, a, a ruinous heap. It's going to be uninhabitable. You can write down in your notes, Jeremiah chapter 49, that also talks about the judgment against Damascus. So there's going to be a time when uh, it will be a ruinous heap. It will be cease from being a city. That has not taken place yet. But then as we continue on, uh, keep in mind that the Assyrians, that they came into Syria in about 732 B.C. They took Syria. Don't get confused with Syria and Assyria. It's not the same thing. Assyria was the mighty empire that came into Syria, Damascus, uh, killed the king, took over that area, and then took over uh, those two and a half tribes who were on the east side of the Jordan River. When the children of Israel came into the land, according to Joshua, and they were given their allotments, it was half of the tribe of Manasseh, the tribe of Gad, and the tribe of Reuben that were on the east side of the Jordan River. And as they were there, they were the first ones that were taken off into captivity by the Assyrians. It would be 10 years later in 722 B.C. that the rest of Ephraim would be taken off into captivity by the Assyrians. I think that we begin to see that spoken of here in verse 2. The cities of Aorer are forsaken, and they will be for flocks which lie down, and no one will make them afraid. The fortress, fortress also will see from Ephraim. Ephraim is another name for Israel. And the kingdom from Damascus and the remnant of Syria. And they will be as glory of the children of Israel, says the Lord of hosts. So Aorer, uh, forsaken, it means in the Hebrew that they are abandoned. Now this is a little bit difficult, what scholars say, where they pinpoint where Aorer is. There was a, a town named that in southern Israel, very far from Damascus. There was one Aorer in central, uh, you know, uh, Jordan, uh, what we call Jordan today, still south of Damascus, kind of east of the Dead Sea. But this is probably talking about Aorer of Gad, um, the, the tribe of Gad taken off eventually uh, in 732 B.C. as they came and took those tribes away. So they, again, are taken off into captivity, and then the Assyrians, verse 3, would come in to the rest of Ephraim or the ten northern tribes that take them away. And verse 4, in that day it shall come to pass that the glory of Jacob will wane and the fatness of his flesh grow lean. And it shall be as when the harvesters gather the grain and reaps the heads with his arm. It shall be as he who gathers heads of grain in the valley Rephraim, and yet gleaming, gleaning grapes will be left in it like the shaking of an olive tree and two or three olives at the top of the uppermost bough, four or five of its most fruitful branches, says the Lord God of Israel. So in these verses here, we see that as they make their way down, what would happen is that they would continue to make their way into the, the area of Judah. They would go over, as we saw last week, that proclamation or burden against Philistia or the Philistines, that the Assyrians would begin to make their way over towards the coast and they would make their way towards Jerusalem. So the Valley Rephraim here is actually a valley that um, is between Jerusalem and the coast. It takes you to the Valley of Elah there where David would slew Goliath uh, that we have the story of there in 1 Samuel. And so here is Assyria flexing its muscles, coming into the area of Judah, seizing some of the cities there, Philistia, making their way towards Jerusalem. And, and here's the thing. At that time, we know that Ahaz, he took some of the gold and silver to, to try to appease Tiglath-Pileger, uh, the king of uh, Assyria. At that time, later on, here comes Hezekiah, 
that he becomes the king. And Hezekiah was a good king. He was a godly king. He was a great man of God. But as he sees the Assyrians getting closer, he does the same thing. He takes some of the gold and silver from the temple, tries to pay off Shennacherib, who at that time was the king of Assyria, and says, please don't attack me. And you know what Shennacherib did? He took the gold and the silver, and he kept coming. You see, there's a very important lesson in that for us. Don't try to make a peace treaty with the enemy. And you can try to appease the enemy, make a peace treaty with him, try to pay him off. But I'm going to tell you this. If you try to compromise or try to make a, a peace treaty with him, he's going to take the goods, whatever it is that you're offering, and he's going to keep coming at you. And he's out to destroy you, and he's out to surround you, just like Shennacherib surrounded, as we're going to see Jerusalem, with all those soldiers to destroy Jerusalem, and God intervened. Trust in the Lord. And in those times where we can become very frightened because of the situation around us, what can cause, you know, fear can cause us to do is begin to try to make a peace treaty with the enemy or try to compromise. Listen, trust in him and look to the Lord. And don't make a peace treaty with the enemy because he is going to keep coming at you and he's going to desire to destroy you and destroy your life and your family and your marriage and your ministry in any way that he can get a foothold into your life. So that was a lesson that Hezekiah learned. And when the Assyrians did surround Jerusalem, we will read how Hezekiah and the leaders went to prayer and fasting before the Lord and the Lord took care of them. And he's going to take care of you. Because the promises of God are yes and amen. And they are for you today. And he is with you. And he's not going to forsake you. But he's going to work on your behalf as you trust in him and then rest in what he's doing in your life. Well, we see here that the Assyrians would make their way. And, and, and what was to be fruitful, we see that two or three olives are only on top of the uppermost bow. It was, it was devastating as the Assyrians came in. And we read in verse 7, In that day a man will look to his maker, and his eyes will have respect for the Holy One of Israel. He will not look to the altars, uh, the work of his hands. He will not respect what his fingers have made, nor the wooden images, nor the incense altars. And so all of a sudden, there are going to be those who are involved in idol worship. Remember, part of the problem that was taking place at this time is that not only the house of Israel, but the house of Judah was plunged into idol worship. And all of a sudden, they're going to realize that those idols are not going to help them. There are a lot of things in our lives that can, you know, be an idol to us. It's not just a statue, you know, that we have that we carry around and bow down to. It may be all kinds of things that become an idol. Anything that takes priority over your relationship and devotion to the Lord becomes an idol. And what is it that you're living for? What motivates you to get up? Where do you turn in your hour of need? Are you going to turn to those things? Think about it. When those people received, you know, that text in Hawaii, and they're wondering, you know, what's going to happen, no amount of what they had in their bank accounts, their, what, how big their homes were, how many cars they had, how popular they were, none of those things were going to help them, right? And the Christians that have Jesus Christ were the ones that truly had the hope, the only hope that there is. And that is true for you and for me. Because the things of the world, even though every good and perfect gift comes from above, and we can be thankful for what the Lord has given to us, and we can be thankful for the things that have been blessed to us, and we are to be good stewards of those things. But those things of the world, we cannot take with us. And what we do for Christ, that's what's going to last. And our hope is in Jesus Christ alone. Amen. And I hope that we really understand that. And when we make that our own and get it into our hearts, then we're not going to prioritize the world. Because the world is not our hope. And those idols that we can have in, in our lives, and listen, understand that we can enjoy doing things. We can enjoy living life. 
But don't make those things a priority over your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And as you make him the priority, you're going to enjoy those things uh, more than if you do it in your own flesh and energy and your own entertainment and, and selfish desires and all of this. But to really say, Lord, that abundant life comes from you. And being close to you. And the joy and the peace of the Lord. And the comfort of the Lord. And the wisdom of the Lord. It's all found in Him. And we are complete in Him. And ladies, you're going to be learning about that in the Colossians study. And the, in the conference. And also as we go through the book of Hebrews as well. Don't turn to those things that cannot save you. To be your hope. But turn to him. And in this day, they're going to realize that there are going to be some that are going to turn to their maker. And, and they're going to realize that those idols were not a help to them. And in that day, verse 9 goes on to say, In the strong cities there will be a forsaken bough and an uppermost branch, which they left because of the children of Israel. And there will be desolation. Because you have forgotten the God of your salvation and not been mindful of the rock of your stronghold, therefore you will plant pleasant plants and set out foreign seedlings. In, that, in the day you will make your plant to grow, and in the morning you will make your seed to flourish. But the harvest will be a heap of ruins in the day of grief and desperate sorrow. Kind of interesting here is it's going to be to where because you have forsaken the Lord... <laughs> that the Assyrians are going to come down because you had turned to your idols. And of course, God had made that covenant with the children of Israel there at Mount Sinai that um, I want to sneeze. Okay. <laughs> I think I'm over it now. But the children of Israel at Mount Sinai received that covenant. And the Lord said, if you forsake me, you know, then you're going to go into captivity and there's going to be consequences and drought and, and the, you're not going to have a harvest. If you follow after me, I'll protect you from your enemy. So they were a covenant people, but here as we see that it's interesting, in the day of grief and desperate sorrow, it's interesting when you go to Jeremiah chapter 49 and you read that proclamation against Damascus, uh, we see that Jeremiah the weeping prophet uses words like helpless and feeble and anguish and sorrow. Um, their, their work was brought to nothing. Uh, it's a day of grief and sorrow and, and the harvest is ruined. And only what we do for Christ in the end, that's what's going to last. So keep him the priority and serve him. Store up your treasure in heaven. And wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart's going to be. And so as we do that, we're going to see that there is going to be a harvest. I want to be a part of a harvest that's an eternal harvest. And Jesus himself said that the, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And the days in which we are living in, that the Lord desires to raise up laborers, you know, whether we are sharing, every one of us are in our mission field when we leave here, to family members and to coworkers and to old friends and, and neighbors and others that are linked to us in our lives, but also being able to invest in the kingdom of God as well, the work that is being done. And I'm so thankful for you who invest here at Calvary Chapel that we can be on the radio and we can give the gospel and we can give the truth of God's word. And there's fruit that's being produced and the harvest, we are a part of the harvest that is happening. And what a tremendous blessing. And then keep in mind that Paul would say to the Philippian believers at the end of that epistle, and that was one of the reasons why Paul wrote the book of Philippians, to thank them for their giving. They gave out of their poverty. They gave out of their persecution. They, they didn't have a lot, but they gave freely. They gave willingly. They gave cheerfully. As Paul is commending them in 2 Corinthians, the churches of Macedonia, and that would be the church of Philippi. But they would give to Paul. They were a very given church. And Paul says, because of the fruit that abounds, it will be accounted to, to you, to your account. In other words, we have a spiritual account. So are we investing in that? Are we putting away for eternity? Uh, we can send it a hand, ahead, and there are eternal rewards given 
to those of us who invest in eternity. And I want to continue to invest in that which is going to last, and that is in the kingdom of God. And there's nothing wrong with making investments here, but know this, that it will go away eventually. So we want to keep a priority in investing in the Lord. So it's a day of grief and desperate sorrow. And then verse 12, Woe to the multitude of many people who make a noise like the roar of the seas into the rushing of nations that make a rushing like the rushing of mighty waters. The nations will rush like the rushing of many waters. But God will rebuke them and they will flee far away and and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind. Like a rolling thing before the whirlwind. And verse 14, then behold at evening tide trouble and before the morning he is no more. And this is the portion of those who plunder us and a lot of those who rob us. It's interesting (laughs) verses that are here. That you remember that in chapter 8 that it was the Lord that, that said concerning Assyria that they're going to overflow the banks of the great rivers, you know, Euphrates and Tigris. It's going to be like a flood as they make their way over to Syria and to the house of Israel and then eventually into Judah. And it's like a river overflowing. And so here uh, there are those who believe that's what's being talked about. The rushing of the nations like the rushing, like the rushing of many waters, that that's Assyria. But there are others who link this now to verse 1. Because what is interesting here as we say, woe to the multitude of many people, verse 12, that make that noise like a roar of the seas and the rushing of nations, rushing of mighty waters, the nations will rush like the rushing of many waters and God will rebuke them. We see that it's not just Assyria, but it's nations. And so that's why that you'll hear sometimes that there are those who suggest we don't know for sure that maybe perhaps Isaiah chapter 17 verse 1 could it be linked to Ezekiel 38 and 39 that we talked about in the end of 2017 on New Year's Eve and then on uh, the first Sunday in that two-part series, a Noise from the North as that confederation of nations uh, led by Russia and then also uh, Tubal Meshach uh, as Tagarma and, and Gomer, speaking of Turkey and Persia, uh, speaking of Iran, these confederation of nations that have really come together particularly the three main players of Ezekiel 38 that will take place, as you recall, in the latter days that this alliance of nations that has never come to pass until just recently never has Russia and Iran and Turkey been aligned together. Uh, They're in Syria. They have strong military presence in Syria right on the northern uh, borders of Israel. And God says, I will put a hook in their jaw and bring them down into the mountains of Israel. And also what we see that there's going to be Cush or uh, what is believed to be Sudan and then also Libya, there's going to be many people with them. So there are others that are with them as well that are not identified in this massive invasion into Israel that is going to be in the latter days. And they are coming to take a plunder. You remember to take a spoil as it is a confederation of nations led by Saudi Arabia that's going to protest on behalf of Israel. If you did not listen to those teachings, you might want to pick it up, uh, download it on our website or, or sign up for the CD or whatever to listen to it because this is going to make a whole lot more sense. And so with those nations there, as we know that uh, Russia has military base there in Syria. Um, They also have a large port, military port, where they have nuclear submarines and warships there in Syria. And what is interesting when, I'm going to read it to you, but you can kind of look at it in um, in Jeremiah 49, this judgment against Damascus, that Hamath and Arpad, which are up north, are shamed, for they have heard bad news. They are faint-hearted. There is trouble on the sea. So could it be that perhaps it is making reference to those ports of of Russia? And then we also know that Iranian troops are making a base right there, only a few miles from the Golan Heights in Israel. So all those things that we covered. And it's interesting days. Now, here's the thing. As I mentioned before, just because we have these stage setting events 
for Ezekiel 38 to really happen and be fulfilled doesn't mean it's going to be fulfilled tomorrow or next week or this year. We don't know how this is going to all end, but Damascus is very much in the middle of it. And could there be a trigger to where Russia comes down and also with Iran in this massive invasion, that that's what the end of chapter 17 is speaking about. The, the noise of many nations coming into Israel as we see that God will speak and he will turn them away, as it says, rebuke them and they will flee far away and be chased like the chaff of the mountains before the wind. So again, speaking that it's going to take place as they come into the mountains of Israel. That's what Ezekiel 38 says and that they are coming to plunder that they want to take. This is the portion of those who plunder us and a lot of those who rob us. We know from Ezekiel 38 that those protesting nations are saying to Russia and to Iran and to, to Sudan and to Libya and the many peoples that come with them why are you coming to take a, a spoil, a plunder? So same words that are there. And we also know that God will destroy those invading armies. So is Damascus involved in that? So there may be a linkage that is there. We don't know again for sure. And I just wonder what the trigger will be. Because one of the things that I get asked, I get emails or I get asked, you know, uh, is North Korea mentioned in end-time prophecy? North Korea is not mentioned in end-time prophecy. But we do know that North Korea is good friends with who? Iran. And we know that they are helping Iran. Well, at least it's believed uh, with, you know, their, their missile technology. Uh, Iran would love to have that technology that North Korea has developed. And also that we know that Syria has been very close to, to North Korea. Matter of fact, in 2008, and, and I've mentioned this before, that North Korea, the scientists were helping Syria build a nuclear plant. The Israelis got uh, satellite photos of it. Uh, they, they realized that these guys are making it. This is a nuclear plant. <laughs> They went in there, dropped paratroopers in there. They took samples. They realized that they haven't developed a nuclear weapon, and then they bombed that plan in 2008, and that's all documented. And um, it, it's North Korean scientists were there. So they are a part of that. So we don't know what's going to trigger all this to take place in Ezekiel 38, 39, or Damascus being destroyed. But it is interesting that those nations are present there in Syria on the northern border, I just wonder, and this is just a thought, um, and, um, you know, I'm as wrong as anybody else, but you do wonder, since the United States is not mentioned, and that was part two of the message, in end-time prophecy, or really is absent, uh, Israel's on their own when this massive invasion comes in, these many nations, if this is linked to Ezekiel 38. Then why is the United States not mentioned? And we don't know for sure. But could it be if, if North Korea is a trigger, I hope that it's not, that we get involved with a, a, a war with North Korea? And this is what uh, the, the military analysts are saying, if you dig up some articles, that if that happens, then you're going to see their conclusion is that Russia and Iran are going to take advantage of the Middle East. And could they then say, we're going to go into Israel and take the land? You don't know for sure. But it's interesting days, and it causes us to realize that as we see the storm clouds gathering, that we are to be ones that continue on with the Lord, that we are to be encouraging to others, that we are to live for him and not be wasting a lot of time. That's the prayer for me. That, Lord, I want to be alert and be watching and waiting because we are living in days that I realize that we were created for such a time as this, and so were you. And even though they are very perilous times, the last days are going to be, as Paul would write to Timothy, that we also know that these are very unique times for you and I and for this church here, Calvary Chapel, to be a light and to be used. Because there is a harvest that is happening and I pray that we would say, Lord, how is it that you would use me? How can I invest? How can I be an encouragement to family? 
and that we wouldn't live with regrets that are wasting a lot of time. But Lord, I want to be sensitive to your leading. And I don't think that we have to live life afraid that, you know, that we're going to be nuked. I don't think we need to be afraid because there's a lot of fearful things that are out there. And one of the things that we're going to see in Hebrews chapter 2 is because of what Jesus Christ has done for us and going to the cross and providing salvation and he's conquered sin and death that we're told that we don't have to be afraid of death. We have a living hope, don't we? And we can live in that living hope every single day. But Lord, I don't want to be wasting a lot of time because I am here for such a time as this. And you may be the only truth, the only light that people get to see that are linked to you, whether that's at work or other family members or your neighbors. Be used of the Lord. Be sensitive to his leading. And desire to redeem the time, as Paul would write in Ephesians chapter 5, for the days are evil. And, and let's do that. Let's do that together. Amen? Let's as a church say that we want to continue to be about the things of the Lord in the word of God. And even as the church of Philadelphia, that they were the faithful church, were told, commended by the Lord. He said, you have a little strength. They weren't this great, big, you know, huge organization, you know, and, and they had a little strength. Their strength was in the Lord. Our strength is in the Lord. You have not denied the name of Jesus and you have not forsaken the word. And that's my prayer for us, that we would stand on the word of God, especially in a culture that's saying that evil is good and, and, and good is evil and dismissing the word of God and making excuses for the word of God, that we would stand on it. And that we would love one another and have a heart for the loss and proclaim the gospel that eternal life comes through Jesus Christ alone. And that he is our hope. Because these things will be fulfilled. And there's going to be the enemy that's going to want to plunder us and come against us. But let's be laborers for the harvest, investing in the kingdom. And let's live every day for him. All right? Amen? Amen. So, Father, we thank you. We thank you for this chapter. And, Lord, it just, the events of the last few days, and it just kind of reminds us of the day in which we're living in. Because, again, um, tomorrow isn't promised to any of us. And we don't have to live in fear. But, Lord, we trust you that you hold every breath that we take in your hands. That, Lord, that... Um, Moses would write in Psalm 90, teach us to number our days. And so, Lord, we're in your care and your hands. And may we be ones that every single day that we wake up desiring to walk with you, to know you, to love you and be used of you. And, Father, we're reminded how we need to pray for our nation we pray for a nation that we get concerned about, that's getting further away from you. A nation that doesn't want you in our schools, in our courts, in our government, doesn't want to be mentioned prayers at football games or graduations, the name of Jesus not mentioned. But Lord, I pray for a nation that you care and love and you have blessed. I pray for our leaders to humble themselves and turn to you. And as a nation, we would turn from our sins and humble ourselves before you and recognize our need for you. That I pray there would be a great awakening a true spiritual revival that would happen in this land in the days in which we're in. And Lord, that the church, the church that, that we love, that you love, that as we see more and more just 
putting aside the word of God and the truth of scripture. That, Lord, that we would stand on it and be light in a city on a hill. Not to put our light under the bed, but to let it shine and declare it and to love people and have a heart for the lost. That we would be used in this community for many to be saved. And Lord, I pray for us individually and for this church that, that Lord, we wouldn't waste a lot of time. We can get so distracted with things that really don't matter. Lord, we all have things we need to do and lives that we have to live, but Lord, keeping you the priority of everything in every area of our lives. So Lord, help us how we need you. And as we learn the scriptures to be able to give a message of hope to others, as people are confused, even as they were on Saturday, people are hurting, they're wondering, is there any hope? And we have the answer, yes, there is. It's in the one who came and died for us and rose from the grave and is alive. And if anyone is here in this sanctuary, you're in the coffee shop, you're listening on live stream later on the radio, that you've never made a commitment to Jesus Christ. Listen, a church can't save you. Your parents being Christians doesn't mean that you're a Christian. Trying to be a good person, none of us are good enough. It is faith alone in Jesus Christ. And if you've never made that decision, that today is the day of salvation. If you've never come to Jesus and asked for forgiveness and recognized that you need to repent and turn to him for salvation, he loves you. That's why he came and died for you. And he's alive. There's an empty tomb in Jerusalem. He conquers sin and death. And he's saying, come. The invitation is always to come. And he wants to forgive you and give you the hope of heaven and make you a new person, give you a new heart and a new beginning for you to come into the family of God and know that you have the hope of heaven, a living hope, and that you don't have to fear this world. And if that's you, will you open your heart? If it means anything to anyone here listening, that you would pray right where you are, Jesus, I come to you and I confess that I am a sinner. And I believe you died on that cross for me. Forgive me of my sins. I believe you're alive. Speak into my heart and I ask you to sit upon the throne of my life. And I just thank you for dying for me and loving me. I want to know you and walk with you all the days of my life. In Jesus' name. And as we close the service here in just a minute, that if you made that decision, I'm going to stay here. I want you to come up and tell me the decision that you made. But I want to encourage you and bless you. And for all of us Christians to leave here just rejoicing that we have eternal life through Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, help us to be sensitive to your leading. Help us, those of us who have needs, who are hurting, those of us who are struggling, Lord. Those of us who need wisdom, strength as we're feeling weak, you're, you're everything that we need. So bless your people. And Lord, help us to keep our eyes on the things above, not on the things of this world, because you are our hope. And turn to the Holy One, our Maker, and know that you are, Lord, our Creator, and your mighty God who can work in any situation that we find ourselves in. So, Lord, bless everyone here as we go our way. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. God is good, isn't he?